This is Fortune's Wheel, a podcast history of the late Middle Ages, and I'm your host, Jonathan. On this episode of the podcast, we're going to take a look at what the world gained from Cordoba's rise to the top. Okay, just as a friendly reminder, if you're wondering where episode 57 went on the feed, well, it's there, but it's an anchor-supporting listener episode. If you become an anchor-supporting listener, you're going to receive an extra episode each month, including all those quote-unquote missing episodes in your feed you might be wondering what happened to. And it's for less than two American quarters per month. Now, if you're still wanting more, you can also become a member of our Patreon group, which will give you access to everything published through Anchor, as well as a second extra episode published to Patreon only. For instance, we just began a new series for Patreon members only about the beginnings of Poland. January's episode is already out, and February's should be coming out very shortly. So, here we go. Today's episode, episode 59, is entitled, What Was Gained? Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy the show. One monument on my bucket list to visit was for centuries known as the Great Mosque. Today, it's not a mosque at all, actually. It's a Catholic church known as the Cathedral of Our Lady of the Assumption. Begun in 785 by Emir Abd al-Rahman I, legend has it that the Emir ordered a mosque to be built over an existing Visigothic cathedral on that spot. Records indicate this church was called the Basilica of St. Vincent of Zaragoza, but as far as I can tell, there isn't any physical evidence, meaning it was a story concocted by later Christians toward the end of the Reconquista to justify turning this magnificent mosque into a cathedral, or Al-Rahman's people completely rid the land of this structure. These same records also indicate that the Basilica of St. Vincent of Zaragoza was in fact built upon the remains of an ancient Roman temple to Janus, the god of doors and new beginnings, and side note, the god that we get our month of January named after actually, new beginnings, you get the drift. Al-Arakman had been emir for 29 years at that point, and he had firmly secured his new Umayyad al-Andalus, and during those two plus decades, folks loyal to the Umayyads or those who increasingly heard of the usurpation by the Abbasids and wished to flee, all made their way to Cordoba and its surrounding towns and cities to make a new life. By 785, al-Rahman had a pretty decent gig going in Iberia, and it was time to cement his place in not only the military and religious legacy of this century-old religion, but it was also time to enter his name, into the cultural legacy of Islam as well. More backstory on this if you're interested in our anchor-supporting listener-only episode on uh, episode 57, which, again, if you become a Patreon member, you also have access to. The first stone brick to be positioned was laid by Umayyad loyalists from his homeland of Syria. He heard of the influx of Muslims from all corners of Islam, and with a little homesickness mixed into his planning, he hired his fellow Syrians to lead the design and construction process of his grand monument to Allah in his new home of Cordoba. This colossus remains today one of the biggest mosques in the world, 
some 1,200 years after its foundation was laid. It's something like a quarter million square feet in area, or just over 20,000 square meters. It is built upon a slight incline, which to me, in my very unengineer way of thinking, blows my mind that people a thousand years ago could possibly have kept everything from the floors to the ramparts level. I don't know. It's pretty impressive, even if it was established, uh, designed to that point. I mean, I'm someone who finds it impressive when I walk around my neighborhood and see people who are able to build those three brick high flower beds on a sloping front yard. So, like Syrian Muslims did this for structure, for a structure the size of a modern warehouse, and they did it with the stone and with their hands only. I mean, it just blows my mind, but I could just be a simpleton when it comes to engineering. So my simple, unimp- or my simple impressed mind aside, the website Spain Then and Now points out another great point, which makes this mosque an impressive testament to its time, its place, and its creator, when it wrote the following statement, quote, it also signified that there existed in Cordoba a sufficiently large Muslim community to require a big mosque, end quote. Simple statement, loads of context. Muslims, or Moors as they are traditionally called in the context of Iberian history, had only arrived as a unified group vying for dominance some 74 years prior to this mosque's construction. Sure, Moors made their way across the Strait of Gibraltar before 711, but they were still very much newcomers expected to slide into Visigothic Christian communities. Well, over the next seven decades, the building of this grand mosque signaled to the world just how much Abd al-Rahman's arrival had changed the religious and racial makeup of the peninsula. And it seems like the great mosque, called La Mesquita in Spanish, can be used as a weather vane gauging the fortunes and misfortunes of the city and its surrounding strongholds. Into the 11th century, Friday prayers in Cordoba continued to swell to the point that expansions were absolutely necessary. Remember, Friday prayer a thousand years ago required all adult males to attend. So if Cordoba was swelling to the point that the largest mosque of its kind couldn't hold just the Muslim males in the city, well, that's a pretty big city. And it was, in fact, at one of these Friday midday prayers that in the early 10th century, the name of the Abbasid Caliph was purposely, keyword, purposely omitted from its role, announcing to those in attendance, strategically important because, again, all those in attendance were, in theory, every Muslim man in Cordoba, it announced that that they were no longer living in an emirate and now in a full-fledged caliphate, an Umayyad caliphate, once again, something not seen in over 160 years. Yeah, the walls of La Mesquita may have had a simplistic design, too, without any elaborate decorations or sculptures on the outside, too. In fact, it had more of a fortress appearance from the outside. When first built, it had a stunning appearance as the external walls incorporated many of the existing Roman building materials, which were in turn incorporated by Visigoths in the area, such as white marble stone, for instance. According to Justin Marazzi's 
Islamic empires, the cities that shaped civilization from Mecca to Dubai, the great mosque, quote, is universally recognized as one of the most singular monuments of medieval architecture. Its arcaded hypostyle hall, a forest of 856 columns of multicolored marble, jasper, onyx, and graphite, surmounted with intricately decorated Roman, Gothic, and Moorish capitals, beneath alternating red and white stone and brick voussoirs set in double arches, remains a richly atmospheric space, long likened to a bristling grove of palm trees and another architectural allusion to the beloved Umayyad homeland of Damascus, where, from where the dynasty had originally hailed. End quote. I mean, the white marble on the exterior must have shown incredibly bright in the southern Iberian sunshine, given the entire structure in incredibly awe-inspiring and humbling appearance to Muslims and non-Muslims alike. How could you miss it? In addition to this masonry, the mosque is essentially a gigantic community room where Muslim men would conduct their sacred prayers as well as listen to the teachings of the imams and even join in fellowship with one another, making friends as well as networking. The great mosque is separated, as all mosques are, in five major areas, coinciding with the five pillars of Islam, which is another topic altogether. Now, if I get any of this uh, wrong, it's not intended, but this is what I found in my research, so I hope it is accurate. If not, please reach out to me and let me know, and I'd be happy to make a correction. First, the Qibla, which is also called the prayer wall, simply shows those in, in, in the interior of the building which direction Mecca is. Knowing the direction of Mecca is a core piece of knowledge uh, for every mosque, as Muslims always face Mecca when praying the prayer known as Salat. Now, on the Qibla is another important feature, a decorative niche, or alcove, that also points in the direction of Mecca. The minbar is an elevated platform connected to a set of stairs. The imam makes his way up the stairs to the platform and delivers his sermon to those in attendance. Next is a dome. The dome is often present in mosques, but not always. Those listening are most likely aware of the incredibly bright gold one adorning the Dome of the Rock in Jerusalem. This dome isn't just a neat piece of architecture, as all domes are. No, domes represent something in Islam that I find beautiful. The dome on a mosque represents the universe itself, all of creation. And the existence of the dome, the existence of the universe, is meant to always convey the power of Allah, the Creator. Everything beneath this dome is due to the power and generosity of that which created it. Therefore, should you find yourself beneath this dome, your attention, your, your adoration, your obedience, and your eternal soul should be focused on that which created it. In this case, Allah. The dome itself doesn't just represent the universe, though. Rather, it also incorporates an idea called ta. Tawhid, Tawid, I hope I didn't pronounce that right, which is the idea that Allah and the universe he created are one. The dome is also a representation of Allah, if I'm understanding it correctly, that is. If there is a Muslim listener again in the audience, please reach out to me and correct me if I'm wrong on any of this. 
Either way, the dome seems to be the focal point of a mosque, as it's where most prayers are held. So moving on, we have one of the more iconic symbols of Islam, the minaret. This very recognizable tower, uh, often towers above higher than anything else on the mosque for a reason. It's meant to do so. Muslims pray three times from sunup to sundown every single day in order to keep everyone across the city true to this tradition and on the same schedule. The minaret towers above everyone and everything, and by, th- by doing this, the muzin calls all to stop what they are doing, spread a blanket upon the ground, drop to their knees, and bow their heads low, and perform the adan, which is the name for the prayer itself. If you are of the faith, then you are not exempt from this practice, period. And finally, there is the courtyard within the walls of some of some mosques, including the Great Mosque of Cordoba, an open area was constructed to allow the light of Allah to enter, and it serves as a gathering place of the faithful, free from the stresses of the outside world. The Great Mosque also had other areas, especially with how massive this structure was compared to other mosques. There was a sacred place for washing before prayers, known as wudu. Classrooms for young and old alike took up ample space. Places to ready the body for burial and various multi-use offices were also present in the Great Mosque. The walls, still today, are beautifully decorated with colorful mosaics of the most complicated geometric patterns. See, in Islam, iconography of all kinds is strictly forbidden. No questions. And those who break this paramount rule would succumb to swift and, and... oftentimes brutal punishment, Muslim or not. This was made abundantly clear by the horrific terrorist attack on the French headquarters of the publication Charlie Hebdo, in which 12 people were murdered and another 11 were injured by those associated with Muslim terrorist organization Al-Qaeda back in January of 2015, for those who remember. So in lieu of this lack of images and the like, Muslims have created their own way of showing the beauty of the Quran by using their already beautiful language, Arabic, and making the very written word a symbol of reverence and, well, again, beauty. This Arabic calligraphy can be found on the walls of many Muslim buildings, but mosques are a key place to find this art form. Over the centuries, the Great Mosque of Cordoba has undergone a lot of changes, As I said, it's currently serving as a cathedral and has for about six or seven centuries. But its magnificence isn't bound by any faith-based prejudices. In fact, skipping ahead about five centuries as it was undergoing its first major repurposing toward the end of the Reconquista, to once again quote Justin Marazzi's excellent book, Islamic Empires, quote, The signature monument of Al-Andalus, the Great Mosque, is also an a unique embodiment of Spanish history, a palimpsest on which successive dynasties and faiths have marked their supremacy, from the Reconquista of Cordoba by Ferdinand III of Castile in 1236. The monument had been a Muslim place of worship for almost half a millennium, became a church again. Christian alterations continued over the next several centuries, but the most significant shape-shifting change occurred in 1523 when the Holy Roman Emperor Charles V authorized the construction of a Renaissance cathedral nave 
inside the mosque, a decision which he famously came to regret. Side note, I do like this story. On visiting, uh, back to quoting Justin Marazzi, on visiting the church to inspect the completed work, he was appalled. Charles V is recorded as saying, if I had known what you wanted to do, I would never have allowed it. <laughs> he was, was said to have thundered. You have taken something unique in the world and destroyed it to build something you can find in any city, end quote. Now, if you'll indulge the, bit, the point a bit further, Marazzi continues with some modern local sentiments concerning the mosque-turned-cathedral. He says, quote, Even in the 21st century, this loss can still rankle in Cordoba and is capable of stirring more than merely literary regret. In recent years, Spanish Muslims have lobbied for permission to pray in the cathedral mosque, a request that has been steadfastly rejected by both the Spanish church and the Vatican, end quote. So, I mean, the history of the great mosque in the millennium-long back and forth between Christians and Muslims, well, it still continues to this day, and that seems to be an epicenter. Now, Changing gears, Abd al-Rahman III, in addition to becoming Cordoba's first caliph, also undertook another one of the grandest construction projects in the entire Middle Ages. It was called the Medinat al-Zara. This sprawling complex, just a handful of miles west of Cordoba, is rumored to hold the name of the caliph's most beloved concubine, though let's call a spade for a spade. Let's not pretend this is some grand romantic gesture by a man deep in love, like, like, you know, the Taj Mahal or something like that. Alzara, if she existed, well, she was a slave. Let's, let's just call it what it was, a concubine. She was a slave. More specifically, she was a slave with one main purpose. And since this is a family show, I'll leave the details behind the curtain here. But make no mistake that the Caliph was no innocent star-crossed lover. In fact, it's said that he possessed over 6,000 such women. So, yeah, sorry. No love for this guy, uh, this guy's seeming romanticism from me. The subject of concubinage is infuriating, to be quite honest. But again, as I try to remind myself during my research and on this podcast, our opinions of these people are seen through the lens of a thousand years of progress in the areas of basic human rights and value. So in order to understand this history, I have to put my biases aside for a moment. But to throw the man a bone here, by naming this massive grand palace complex after a woman who had caught his eye more than any other, well, I get the sentiment. And I think that it's a testament to the unique beauty of this Alzara hat that she had. And I'm not just meaning physical beauty. What is very often misrepresented, though men certainly don't do themselves any favor in this regard to change you know, the, the narrative on it, what is very often misre misrepresented is the fact that beauty isn't just physical with men. I'll wait for you to stop laughing. I'll say it again, though. Okay, so the beauty isn't just physical with men. It's far more nuanced than that, believe it or not. And keep in mind, I'm also speaking in generalities here, but it's worth considering. Maybe this Alzara had an alluring quality to her having absolutely nothing to do with her physical appearance. 
the way she threw glances at him across the room, the way she walked, the way she danced, the way she listened to him. I know all those are physical, but there's something, you know, not physical about all those behaviors as well. There's something deeper to it. Now, there's a whole spectrum of alluring qualities that coexist alongside the physical. I just wanted to give credit to this mysterious lady who had been forced, most likely at a horrifically uh, young age, to be subdued and made only to serve at the pleasure of the caliph. Now, whatever it was about Alzara, this palace was to complement her qualities in architectural form. From east to west, it measured nearly one mile, and half that north to south. This rectangular complex was truly grand, and the fact that it was built into the rolling foothills of the nearby Sierra Morena Mountains that horseshoed itself around Cordoba, as Marazzi put it, quote, It lorded over the plains below from three descending terraces, each one surrounded by turreted forest, fortress walls. This complex could be seen in the distance of the edge of Cordoba as a reminder of this grand new caliph's control over everything he saw, end quote. Over the course of 40 years, well into, his, into the reign of his son Hakam II, this 280-acre monstrosity utilized between 10,000 and 12,000 workers, free skilled laborers and designers, as well as slaves. Marazzi states the final cost was roughly one-third of all government revenues over the entire period of its construction. Whew. One can't help but imagine what that one-third of all government revenues over the course of four decades could have been used for, you know, other than the construction of a palace that only a handful of people were to ever have truly enjoyed the splendor of. Well, this wasn't lost on the people he lorded his wealth over because that, because that it is estimated to be more than three million gold dinars per year. Marazzi says, quote, Abid al-Rahman's personal obsession with the project was so notorious that he was publicly chastised by a Cordoban jurist when he failed to attend prayers at the, grand, at the Great Mosque on several consecutive Fridays, end quote. So as you can see, I'm getting most of this information from Marazzi's book, but let me grab the highlights of the construction, though I urge you all to read it for yourself. Marazzi, in my opinion, is a pretty great, pretty great storyteller of nonfiction. Every third day, for 40 years, over 1,000 loads of clay and plaster were used. Hauling the materials up the rocky, sloping foothills took about 15,000 mules and 5,000 camels. These materials included white marble quarried from Tarragona in northeastern Iberia and Almeria in southeastern Iberia, pink and green marble from Carthage, Tunis, Sfax, Rome, and West Francia. The highest terrace of the three was where the palace proper sat, but in addition to the massive turreted and guarded walls one mile by half a mile around the outside edge, and again separating the middle terrace from the lowest, well, the caliph also designed another series of smaller, independent fortresses to help guard the palace should the enemy breach that far. The middle terrace had gigantic shaded manicured gardens of fig and almond trees, as well as a diverse game reserve for not only fresh meat, but sport as well. All slaves and servants lived in the lower, lowest terrace. 
There was a magnificent mosque built into the lowest terrace for these slaves, servants, outsiders, and visitors to attend prayers and sermons, and some felt it was meant to challenge the superiority of the great, of the great mosque near the Guadalquivir River in Cordoba, but the great mosque held its own, no doubt. So Marazzi continues, reporting the staggering number of buildings constructed somewhere within Medinat al-Zara. Quote, sumptuous residences, he writes, inns, colleges, barracks, bathhouses, workshops, kitchens, a zoo, an aviary, and pools stocked with fish. End quote. Some more stats. Male servants amounted to 13,750 while the slaves and eunuchs numbered over 3,700. Running water from local aqueducts were a marvel that wouldn't make its way across the Pyrenees for centuries. But it wasn't just a marvel recognized and celebrated by Muslims. Hardly. Constantinople sent Byzantine pillars, 140 of them to be exact, to join the 4,000 pillars already built around the palace, in addition to a gold fountain, the largest in the entire compound. It's also said that the Eastern Roman Emperor, Leo VI, sent the Caliph a giant pearl as a gift. Now, what they did with it must have stunned those in the room, and think this is a thousand years ago. Here's Marazzi's account, quote, or excuse me, the huge pearl, quote, was suspended above a pool filled with mercury. Now, picture that. Eight doors decorated with gold and ebony lined each side of the hall between piers of colored marble and clear crystal. The drapings of this room were said to be of gold and silver. The choice of materials was calculated to impress forcefully the power and the majesty of the caliph. When the sun shone into the room, blinding light reflected from the walls and ceiling. End quote. So, to switch and quote a contemporary account of this, it said, quote, When the caliph wished to astonish his visitors, he would signal to one of the slaves to disturb the pool of quicksilver, that is mercury. At once the hall would be filled with flashes of light, and those gathered would begin to tremble, because, so long as the mercury quivered, the whole room appeared to revolve around a central axis following the movement of the sun. End quote. This room was called the Salon of the Caliphs. At some point, we have to move on from this fantastically grand monument to Islamic supremacy, so I suppose we can wrap up this description with one final example of the palace's nod to its Umayyad past and simultaneous look toward innovation and the future of Islam in Iberia. It is among the terraced gardens of the Medinat al-Zara, the earliest example of a purposely planted garden in the Islamic world. And to be sure, this isn't an agricultural garden either. Of course, those existed. This was a garden, a grove, one might say, for contemplation and reflection and to bear witness to nature, or in the Islamic perspective, Allah's power over creation and his sense of beauty. This was akin to what Cyrus the Great called his paradise garden. Now, I don't think this is some, oh, that's nice, a garden kind of detail. In the Old Testament, the idea of paradise, that word paradise, wasn't some wild area where Adam and Eve were meant to roam free from danger and harm and aging. Not necessarily, anyway. In the oldest sense of the word 
garden, garden meant a walled enclosure. It was a safe place created by God to keep the dangers of creation at bay, to keep his beloved creations of Adam and Eve to remain safe. I don't know. It's a nice thought, if you ask me. Comforting, even. I can absolutely see why paradise gardens have come all the way to us today in the 21st century. Aviaries, nature reserves, zoos, backyards and flower beds and hammocks hanging between two trees, these are all reminiscent of the idea of the grand paradise gardens of the past. Marazzi refers to Medinat Azara as the imperial and cultural counterpart to the spiritual symbol of sophistication that is the Great Mosque. It is a majestic monument of the new caliphate's power and its ambitions. But it's also a historical record of yet another leader who shirked his duties as a leader of the people in order to extend his own desires and image. I'm torn as to how I feel about such things, but one thing's for sure. This Alzara lady, <laughs> she must have been one special person. So I hope you enjoyed today um, listening to the abundant evidence of the grandeur of Cordoba's supremacy. And this was just two of them. <laughs> and we will touch on others in the coming episodes. So I hope that I've given you an appreciation for what Cordoba symbolized in the world of the Middle Ages. Really, the Middle Middle Ages. This city was magnificent, warts and all. Those warts came in the forms of slavery, a wealthy elite, the subjugation of other faiths and of women, gross misuse of money, warfare, all the things. But in the West, I caution against throwing the baby out with the bathwater, to use the phrase again. If you compare it to Europe during those same centuries, well, it seems pretty nice, especially if you were a Jew. Don't forget, by the time Cordoba was falling in the 1010s and 1020s, at least the beginning of the real fall, France had launched its first official burning at the stake for the crime of Christian heresy, as well as continuing its long history of every so often terrorizing and massacring local Jewish populations. We did a whole episode on this for Anchor supporters and Patreon supporters. And on that note, I'd like to leave this portion of this season describing Cordoba's splendor with one of the most successful Jews in European history, Muslim or Muslim Iberian or otherwise. Our old friend Hasdai Ibn Shaprut. Remember him? This confidant of the caliph and top diplomat of the caliphate, as well as the well, de facto leader of the Sephardic Jewish community, Arabic and Hebrew poet, philosopher, physician, and translator of some of the most important documents in Jewish and Greek history, you know, uh, Hasdai, <laughs> once, once said about his beloved Cordoba this. He says, quote, It is a fat land full of rivers, springs, and stone-cut walls. It is a land of grains and wines and purest oils, rich in plants, a paradise of every sort of sweet, and with gardens and orchards where every kind of fruit tree blossoms, and those with silkworms in their leaves. Our land also has its own sources of silver and gold, and in her mountains we mine copper and iron, tin and lead, coal and marble and crystal. The king ruling over the land has amassed silver, gold, and other treasures, along with an army the likes of which has never been amassed before. When other kings hear of the power 
and glory of our king, they bring gifts to him. I receive receive these offerings, and I, in turn, offer them recompense. End quote. Convivencia, indeed. But don't just take it from a native. A man named Ibn Hakal, born in the early 900s, in what would either be northern Iraq or Iran, became a traveler and writer of the far-off places he visited. He delivered the equivalent of a three-star Michelin rating for restaurants when he wrote, quote, There is nothing to equal it in the whole of the Maghreb, or even in Upper Mesopotamia, Syria, or Egypt, for the number of its inhabitants, its extent, the vast area taken up by its markets, its cleanliness, the architecture of the mosques, or the great number of baths and caravansaries. It is a city with stone walls, with handsome districts, and vast squares. End quote. And, as reported by Marazzi, according to modern scholar Hugh Kennedy, who summed it up pretty nicely, we'll end it here with, quote, Cordoba in its heyday had no equal in Western Europe, and any realistic comparison would have to be with Baghdad or Constantinople, end quote. Well, in our narrative here on the podcast, it's the 11th century, your move, Europe. Thank you.